This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. We were sitting on something that was going to be revolutionary and we were going to take an enormous leap of faith. We were going to incorporate the company and sign an option agreement for a year to really see if we could build the company and raise the funds necessary to really take this the whole way. Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. It's Gynecologic and Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. And in honor of that, I bring to you one of the co-founders of AOA Diagnostics, Oriana Papin-Zogby. And we are here to talk about a much needed innovation in ovarian cancer, which is a diagnostic test. Seems simple, right? But soon you will learn it's not as easy as you think. But for those of you who are familiar with this space, I think one of the words that comes to mind is finally. So whether you are an oncologist, a patient, or even a venture capitalist, please take a listen to this important information. And Oriana is a new mom, as well as a very busy co-founder. So we apologize for the background noise. She was able to get into a co-working space, but there are a couple people talking in the background. But again, the information is so valuable, and I'm sure you will be able to ignore some of the chatter. So let's dive right in to this important conversation. Tell us about yourself and what AOA is doing, and then we'll dive into all the fascinating stuff about ovarian cancer and um, lots of questions about the diagnostics um, that you guys are working on. So so just start with an intro. Sure. So I'm the CEO and one of the three co-founders of AOA. My background has primarily been in women's health for over a decade now. I was a part of two other women's health startups, um, bringing to market diagnostics from sort of the early days of development, uh, regulatory processes, reimbursement, and then commercialization. Always focused on this idea of where can we bring to market diagnostics and tools um, to impact uh, diseases that disproportionately affect women. And I think a little unique about our story is my three co- my two co-founders and I, so the three of us, have worked together for the last decade at these two previous women's health companies from the early days, both of them going on to exits. Um, so we're now a tribe and uh, we have come together again to focus on um, developing the first, what would be early detection test for ovarian cancer. Um, a really, really sad disease. And so, yeah, after the exit of the last company we were working on, uh, we came together again and and started to build AOA. I'm really excited to connect with you because um, I did some research on other interviews you've done. I think it's such an interesting discussion here for basically anyone who's listening. I think women to understand how the dynamics happen in women's health so they can feel more informed about why certain things are frustrating. Also reminding people that if you think out of the box and work hard and find the right people, change can happen because the way you guys are doing research and when I looked into is extremely innovative. And for VCs to see like what are the teams that are successful and why women's health is so important. Um, and you know, others as well. I just see this conversation as being so relevant to so many different um, people. So I'm excited to get going. So 
why don't you tell us first about the stats for ovarian cancer? Because they are quite alarming. Absolutely. Um, and you just said it, they're very alarming. Ovarian cancer is the deadliest gynecological cancer. And while the incidence, which means the number of cases of ovarian cancer are not that high, as an example, it is three times more lethal than breast cancer. The challenges that we face today is the symptoms for ovarian cancer are not specific. They are things such as bloating, abdominal pain, changes in bowel movements, some things that women go through every single month, but they'll be persistent over time. And the challenge we face is that there is no diagnostic test today, and I'm sure we'll dive into that whole workflow, but what ends up happening is that while over 90% of women experience symptoms at early stages, over 80% of cases are diagnosed when they're already stage three and four. And at that point, the five-year survival rate is only 28%. But what we also do know from clinical practice and from literature is those lucky few that do get diagnosed at stage one and two, their five-year survival rate is 90%. What can we do to catch the disease earlier, to give women a chance at survival and not this horrendous reality that exists today? In the U.S., the average time for diagnosis is nine months. You know how fast ovarian cancer spreads from stage one to stage three, about nine to 12 months. So just by the ways that our healthcare system is equipped today to diagnose, we're just catching them too late. What if we could catch them earlier? What if we could intervene earlier? How much of an impact could we have on a woman's life? Why don't we talk about this workflow of, I, I, I mean, I'm assuming we begin with, I'm a woman that has these symptoms and they're, and by the way, I cover a lot of women's health topics and I started doing episodes called, what if my symptoms are X? What if, cause I, I realized we're all looking at things from a symptom perspective, not always a, I have a condition perspective. And there are so many overlapping symptoms. So paint that picture for us. Cause as a woman, I want to know as a doctor who's trying to help women, I want to know. So, and a caregiver as well. So tell us how that's going right now. Usually it begins with a woman feeling different. It is a mix of abdominal pain, changes in bowel movement, um, bloating with enough um, frequency for a woman to say something does not feel right. It's not the I ate a pizza and feel bloated or I have menstrual cramps. It's I feel something often and it is not right. And over 80% of women actually go to a doctor for these type of concerns. It's either a primary care physician or an OBGYN. And a lot of the time, these concerns, they're mostly associated with GI type of things. In the US, a woman ends up on average seeing four specialties before she gets an ovarian cancer diagnosis. And this is the challenge. There are no accurate differential tests. She walks into that appointment and a physician say, will say, okay, we'll do a clinical workup. We'll look at your history, your family history, because we know that there are certain mutations that affect certain things. Um, sometimes they'll alter an ultrasound and we'll run some blood tests. We're gonna look for infections because this could be a UTI. We're gonna look to see if there's anything going on in your bowels. We're gonna run a CA125 test, which is a marker for pelvic inflammation. It's often used in endometriosis. It's often used in a lot of female conditions. The challenge with CA125 is that it's not specific to ovarian cancer. And so physicians are looking for an upward trend over time. So at that point, they'll get the results back Perhaps there'll be a little bit of an elevated CA125, usually nothing hugely distinguishable on a scan. And they'll say, okay, monitor your symptoms. Come back to me again in three months. We'll retest you and retest your CA125. 
At that point, the woman goes home, monitors the symptoms, what's happening in the background, ovarian cancer is probably spreading. She comes back, they retake her CA-125, it's likely elevated, and they'll say, okay, now we'll refer you to somebody who can guide your care. And typically, that's a gynecology oncologist. In the United States, there are only 900 gynocs in the whole country, and they're mostly distributed on the coasts. A woman, on average, has to travel over 200 miles to get that level of care. So now she's got to go schedule an appointment with the gynoc. They're going to redo all that testing, and they're going to determine, okay, do I think all of this is indicative of a risk of ovarian cancer or not? Because the only way to find out today is I have to take you to surgery. And in that surgery, to be able to just get a biopsy, I have to remove one ovary and one fallopian tube. And so doctors are in a really tough position because just to know if she has ovarian cancer, it's an incredibly invasive surgery. It's not a laparoscopic biopsy that we can just sample the cells and then go. No, I have to remove organs. So they're troubled with this. Do I send a woman to this surgery and she's going to lose her organs? Or do I continue to wait and see and the cancer is going to spread? It's a, it's a horrendous situation for anybody, for the doctors, for the patients, for everybody. And so eventually they go on to the surgery. But what happens? What are the stats? 50% of women that went on to have the surgery did not have a malignancy, but they've lost their organs. And the ones that do have ovarian cancer, 80% are already at stage three and four. We hear all day long, and I, I, there is a certain element of it where like physicians are not paying attention or they're not dismissing or they're dismissing the symptoms. And I guarantee you that happens. But that isn't the intent for the majority of physicians. Right. They just don't have the tools. What are they going to do if they don't have the tests? They're sitting in that position of, do I send her to surgery or do I not send her to surgery? Am I going to take out her organs? And I really, really need to see, you know, the evidence that there is a high risk of ovarian cancer for me to get there. But the challenge is to see that high risk today, it's already too late. Based on what you said with the, the horrific situations, I mean, What's interesting, too, is I've heard things like sometimes clinicians will, for lack of a better way to say it at the moment, is they'll decide for the patient. Like I've heard things like they may be overly concerned about the patients paying too much out of pocket or different things. So I could even see a physician being like, well, maybe I don't want them to lose an organ, so I think we're fine. But they don't necessarily bring it up to the patient again well-intentioned, but without the proper diagnostics, what are they going to do? They're stuck in a really hard place with the best of intentions. Yeah. So tell us about the diagnostic that you all have, um, are testing right now, because I, I read that you guys are still in testing phase. So tell us a bit more about what that's going to do. And then I actually want you to give the backstory because I love the backstory. I researched that. I'm like, you got to give the backstory. So however you want to initiate that discussion, but I, I want to hear like how it came about and and what your your what stage you're in with being able to get that to, to more women. Yeah, let's start with, let's go back to that clinical workflow. So now let's imagine a world where our test comes to market. And this woman is feeling those symptoms She's going to that doctor, she's getting her workup. But now as part of that workup, there's a blood test that is specific for ovarian cancer and highly accurate. That with over 90% accuracy can say you have or you don't have, or I should say with regulatory, with regulatory terms, you are at high risk or you are at low risk for ovarian cancer. But now that helps guide that doctor. Those high risk women straight to your gynonc, straight 
into an OR and let's get that out fast. If you're low risk, no need to go to surgery. We're going to monitor you. We're maybe going to refer you somewhere else because you've got pain. There's probably something going on, but it's not at a risk of ovarian cancer. And so that's the blood test we are developing, which is, um, let's say, a standard blood draw that right. you would get at your OBGYN office, that you would get at your primary care office. And then I guess onto the second point, how did this come about? So we'd come out of our last exit, this was 2018, and my co-founders and I, Anna and Alex, we said, there, there are so many areas of women's health that need innovating. Only 2% of funding goes into women's health and far less non-dilutive funding. And we had read a stat that 90% of medical innovation stays in academia. It gets stuck because scientists are not uh, CEOs. CEOs are rarely scientists. And so we said, okay, we're not, none of us are scientists. We're not in a position where we're going to go to a lab and brew up a really cool idea. We're going to go out and see where's something in women's health getting stuck. And we went to tech transfer offices. We scoured patents. We went to conferences. We looked at what was being presented in the literature. And we identified a lot of big areas. Endometriosis being one of them, preeclampsia being another, just ovarian cancer being another, being like, shit sucks for women here. <laughs> we need to do something about it. And we had mapped those out. And we ended up meeting with a lot of scientists. And then um, very serendipitously, one of our advisors um, met Professor Saragovi, who's the inventor, at a conference in Montreal and knew what he was working on and called us and said, we need to meet with him. I found, I found what you've been looking for. The needle in a haystack, because he had no intention of developing a diagnostic. That was not the path that he was on. He was, he is developing a therapeutic. And so he, he was looking at, okay, I'm developing this therapeutic, but to know who to treat with my therapeutic, I need to do some kind of patient selection. He had zero intention of developing a diagnostic. This was December of 2019. We met and he said, there's a grant coming up. It's about a million dollars. Do you want to co-apply with me? And then from there, we'll see, you know, if we can do a collaboration. And but we've never met. We'd seen the data. We were blown away and we're like, sure, leap of faith. January rolls around. We apply for this grant, January 2020. And the grant's supposed to come out April 2020. We apply. We, he's in Montreal. We're in Boston. We uh, schedule a time for like, I don't know what it was, like March 20th finally meet in person. And then you know history. We know how this history, the world shuts down. We never meet him. The grant gets postponed entirely. And all of a sudden we're in this position of like, okay, like, do we build this company or do we not? And like, we had spent over months now learning so much of the issues in ovarian cancer. We dug into, okay, what would this look like to get regulatory approval? How would this be commercialized? What would reimbursement look like? Why has this not been done before? All these questions and came to the conclusion that we were sitting on something that was going to be revolutionary and we were going to take an enormous leap of faith and put together, we were going to incorporate the company and sign an option agreement for a year um, to really see if we could build the company and raise the funds necessary to really take this the whole way. And this was an enormous leap of faith from both sides. Professor Sargovic working with us, us working with him. And then we did, we put the company together in the summer of 2020 at that point, we had like really early proof of concept data. Then more grant funding started to roll in. And in the second half of the year, we really got a, like a stronger proof of concept study. Um, and then early 2021, we went out to uh, raise some seed money. And we actually ended up raising um, just over $7 million total seed in, in 2021 in two groups. We did like a pre-seed and then we did Y Combinator and then, you know, finished the seed right after that. 
We ended up executing on the option agreement. So now we have a worldwide exclusive license. We ended up doing this over 500 patient study um, to really prove out the efficacy of these markers and that we um, were developing something that's actually going to be clinically valuable. And then we started the development pathway. Our fingers are super crossed for our first scientific publication to come out soon. It's been submitted. So um, hopefully that'll be incredibly soon. But we're deeply underway in development. We're deeply underway in planning our FDA clinical trial. And um, we're going to be going out for our Series A very soon. Wow. So we know that getting funding in women's health and all of those things have always been in the way. But why specifically has it been hard to get this diagnostic for ovarian cancer? Tell us a little bit more about the challenges, because I'd listened to another interview you had done, and you talked a bit more about the science and the art of being able to test for that marker. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Particularly in ovarian cancer, what we've been challenged with thus far is finding markers that are both sensitive and specific. And that means sensitive means that we can accurately catch the disease and specific means that we're not being false positives in a number of other conditions. And what we see in the literature, for example, with CA125, with HE4, that it's usually one or the other. They have a decent sensitivity, but a low specificity or vice versa. Or we start to see a re more recently more literature looking and exploring for markers, but they only have sensitivity, ability to catch at stage three and four, and they're missing the stage one and two diseases. For example, in their, our latest research, where we looked and we compared directly with CA125, their sensitivity in stage one and two was only 50%, flip of a coin, that they were going to catch the early stages. And so that's been the biggest challenge in developing a diagnostic for ovarian cancer, is identifying markers that were going to have both sensitivity and specificity. And that's what's novel and what we're doing. We're looking at an entirely new class of markers known as gangliosides. For example, you may hear in, in research that people are looking at ctDNA, circulating tumor DNA, microRNA, different types of molecules. We're looking at a new class entirely known as gangliosides. And within this family of, mark, of um, different markers, we're looking at two specifically. And we're looking at those levels of concentration specific to ovarian cancer. Okay. And what our research has shown is over 90% sensitivity and over 90% specificity from stage one all the way to stage four. I'm assuming you have enough information because you are applying for this FDA, the next rounds of you know studies and publications and things like that. So can you walk us through the requirements that come into play before you can go to market? Like what needs to be done, how long it will take, uh, because I'm assuming those listening to this, especially if they're like at high risk, they're like, oh, I want to know now. <laughs> so tell us the reality of what's at play here. So at a high level, our goal is to be on the market within three to four years. And the reason it takes that time is because there are a number primarily of um, development and regulatory steps to ensure that we develop a safe product, one that is reproducible, one that is distributable, and the one that is accurately in the eyes obviously of our standards, but also the FDA standards and the market standards and the healthcare standards. And so we need to develop um, the technology further. Right now it's very manual. And so we need to make a less manual version that can be distributed as a kit so that labs all over the world will be able to run this. 
we need to be able to prove both the analytical element and the clinical element to the eyes of the FDA. The analytical stuff tends to be the less interesting stuff. It's checking development milestones. The clinical one is one that requires us to run a large study in the U.S. with a number of different sites collecting patients to be specifically tested with our product. All of that generally goes into a large submission to the FDA where they hopefully um, clear us for sale in the United States. And then from there, we, well, in generally in parallel, we also work on evidence generation, which is continuing to create more literature that's really going to be proof of concept uh, for physicians. Like if you think about selling this, we don't have the necessarily the ability to go, you know, on Instagram and social media and just promote it. We have to prove it with a number yep. of uh, clinical studies. We also have to get reimbursement and figure out, okay, how is this going to be paid for so that this isn't out of pocket for women? And we have to build our sales channels and go from there. And a lot of that tends to happen in parallel, a little bit staggered, obviously, from a stage of the product and from a funding perspective. But the goal is that all of that will bring us to market in the next three to four years. So you're dealing with something already complicated. People want it, need it. But once you prove it, there's a whole other step of convincing. Am I right? Absolutely. Everybody assumes, not everybody, that's unfair. A lot of people assume that, okay, you get regulatory approval, sales are going to happen magically. And the reality is, <laughs> That's just not the case because a lot of the time I'm prohibited from even putting on my website any claims about my product until I get regulatory clearance. So I can't even spend these pre-years promoting it. And so a lot of it is truly based on creating a good clinical evidence pipeline so that studies and studies and studies are coming out so that we are and then creating a good, um, let's say, education channel where we are educating women on their symptoms and then having a strong sales force that is speaking to doctors so much. And then also lobbying with ACOG so that ACOG can include it in their guidelines, so that SGO can include it in their guidelines. There's so much that happens to eventually get like widespread adoption of a technology, no matter how fantastic it is. Let's assume that we have the best diagnostic out there. There's still a big journey to actually get widespread adoption. Thankfully, this is primarily where my background is. So I come from a commercial and go-to-market and sales background, and I have introduced a number of novel technologies that have like significantly disrupted clinical practice, primarily in diagnostics. So I have experience in the space, which is good because I know what to do, but also I know how hard it is. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking now about the anxious women who really want this test today. What should women be, I guess, doing or thinking about because uh, I'm sure you're starting to get questions. I mean, you're all over LinkedIn and I'm sure people are reading about it, telling other friends, I think that's how we discovered each other. But I'm sure there's so much, um, I guess, excitement slash anxiety around, around the process. So I'm curious what uh, your messaging would be to that as we await. The biggest thing that I would say to women is listen to your body. And if you know that something is off, advocate for yourself. And unfortunately, that may look a little bit more today, that may look like a little bit more testing and um, a little bit more hospital visits to really ensure that there's nothing there. Um, but I would say I'm of the mindset that more is better than less right now because the consequence of missing it early is far greater. So when you know that something is off, when you know that something is wrong, Go to your doctors, go to different doctors if they're not listening to you, get yourself worked up, go up the entire chain and ensure that you are getting um, the care that is available right now and to ensure that you're getting diagnosed earlier. And a lot of it, honestly, just comes to the wait times and just like 
wait three months, insist not to wait three months. I want to come back again after a month. I want to retest after a month. I want to be referred. I want to find out what's wrong and push and advocate for yourself to shorten that amount of time to get a diagnosis. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Um, the learning there really is it's not just, I have this symptom, but it's almost like, when is it happening? What's the trigger? How often is it happening? And all those nuances to better inform the doctor of how urgent something might be. Absolutely, absolutely. And even when you were talking about the the way care works now, it's so interesting how siloed our system is because you're right, it's, you know, I'm a woman, I go to my GP or I go to my OBGYN and depending on the symptoms, I'm going to be sent to some subspecialist. But if the root of what's happening to me isn't that, that subspecialist who took three months to go see anyways is going to soon tell you yay or nay, okay, go to this other one. I mean, the long-term implications of the way our system is set up is unbelievable. And it just show, goes to show how much diagnostics are so critical and one of the many elements that will help transform our healthcare system. So critical. I am so glad you say that because every now and then I'll see in the news of how like diagnostics are the underdog of the life sciences industry and like the hot stuff people want are therapeutics or med devices. And I'm like, that's really funny because nobody can use your med devices or your therapeutics until you're diagnosed. So we're the bottleneck here, right? Yep. Like how are you going to know who to treat? How are you going to treat them? Who are you going to operate on with all your therapeutics and devices if you can't diagnose them? Right. And diagnostics are not sexy because the reimbursement typically sucks. And the path to market is kind of long. And yeah, 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 I get that. I've lived it in multiple companies. But you need us. You absolutely do. Otherwise, you're over-treating, you're under-treating, things are happening too late. What do you know to do if you don't know what the problem is? I'm... I'm very uh, passionate about the importance of diagnostics. So actually, so here's a question for you. Is this whole interesting dynamic of how the healthcare system works? And I think understanding that big picture is so important for patients, clinicians, those who are developing their startups is how, and you kind of alluded to it with the reimbursements is right now, doctors are almost incentivized to do. And when you think about how the system works. If you're doing more diagnostics, you're catching things earlier and in the long run, hopefully costing the entire system less, but now you're taking away or minimizing the doing more, the fee for service, right? The fee for everything that a clinician does. And so I'm curious in this life cycle of your journey in this women's health space, what changes have you seen and what do you think still needs to happen? Because like in Europe, they have been way far ahead of the game on really looking at evidence to determine what products are in formulary and how decision-making happens. Now, like in the, in the EU, they're really looking at how do you properly reimburse based on evidence generation and other things like that. We're starting to see some more of that happening in the U.S., but we have a long ways to go. I think the EU has been doing this for over 20 years. So what are you seeing in your life cycle of being in this women's health space as the change and what still needs to happen? I mean, I think systematically, the healthcare systems in the EU and in the U.S. are so different. And I don't think in my lifetime, 
we're going to see a dramatic overhaul of the healthcare system in the U.S. And the challenge that we typically face is this compartmentalized healthcare system, part of it being reimbursed by CMS and then part of it by private insurers. But then the private insurers, there are plentiful. And then even with one private insurer or like Blue Cross Blue Shield, you have to lobby every region. And so it is wild, the process. The things that I've seen change a little bit differently is the conversation around evidence generation and payers starting to understand it and value it. I don't think we're anywhere close to what we see in Europe, but I do. I have seen a shift in mindset to at least consider it and understand it. The challenge that I think we see also in the U.S. is that it is a very complicated uh, like paradigm like pay, the payer world is a very complicated paradigm. And there are very few people that truly understand it. The sooner you incorporate that into what you're building, the better. Because you can build not only with patients in mind, but with payers in mind. The reality is it's really, really expensive to do so. And most startups, most young places of innovations do not have the funds to do both and often end up prioritizing the regulatory pathway because that's often seen as, as the biggest bottleneck because what use is it getting you know, guidance from payers if you're not even approved? It's hard as hell. I'm so excited to watch this um, because last year, you know, I did a podcast interview where it was, here's this cancer, it's nonspecific symptoms, you know, it's really terrible, like what do we do? And now there's like round two of the discussion on ovarian cancer is there's hope. And granted, it's going to take time, but Again, just more reasons why, as you know, women and caregivers are listening to this, don't dismiss your symptoms, fight, track the right information, track the nuances of your body, because it can save your life. Research in women's health, and then people like me can come and find you and bring it to market. That's awesome. Now, uh, I have actually two quick questions. I probably should have asked these earlier, but they just occurred to me. So it is what it is. Um, So one is for the trial that you're doing, how are you enrolling the patients? Because you have to enroll the right amount to be able to validate the test is working. But you just said like one way to diagnose ovarian cancer is removing the ovary. So what's that and then do you need support in recruiting people and make a little pitch here for that absolutely so we're a little bit earlier to start recruiting we hope to begin actually recruiting for the trial in q1 of next year so that's going to be the beginning of 2023 okay i will i will share at a high level what the clinical design looks like with the big caveat that this is very much in discussion this is very much in development and by no means is this final but typically In these cases, the way that the diagnostic pathway looks like is these women will go to the doctor with these symptoms, they'll be included on inclusion criteria, and they'll go through the standard clinical workflow that exists for them today because doctors are blinded to the result of our test. And in all cases, our test will be run, and eventually it will be compared to the actual diagnosis, which today is biopsy. So even the women that are being recruited into the trial today, no clinical decision will be made on the result of our test. They will be blinded to the physician. They will go through the standard clinical workflow. They will also have our blood test drawn, and then we will need to compare the two results. And that's what we're going to be able to use to show the FDA, look, we're just as accurate as biopsy because that's the standard of care. Prove us. Very, very interesting. That was a very simplified high level. And so with a lot of disclaimers that clinical trial design is very intricate in and of itself. So just, you know, for anybody listening to that, just keep that in mind.
but you will be looking for women or will it just be you identify them in the current workflow? Like how will that? No, no, no. Women will work? be pr prospectively recruited into the trial. So if you're feeling symptoms, if you're feeling, you know, anything that's in the inclusion criteria, you're welcome to show up at a site. Okay. Monitor the AOA website. and Yes. Uh, monitor the AOA website. Follow us on LinkedIn. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. But honestly, our, our LinkedIn is, is the most active one. We share a lot of information there, not only about ovarian cancer, but generally about women's health, about being a female founder in this space. We do a lot of events. So follow us. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm so glad we um, got to catch up and we need to, I feel like we need like a mini update session, like every yeah. year to get yeah. the status yeah, of what's going on. Are. Yeah, I know, but I wish you guys all the best. This is so needed. And, you know, just again, testament that never give up in women's health, because if you really work hard, um, change can happen. And hopefully this is the next wave. So thank you so much for your dedication and for making time to give us the update. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a delightful conversation.